Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers, and thanks for joining The Stages podcast. Today, we embark on a three-part conversation with actor, producer, and mentor, Peter Cousins. Peter Cousins grew up in Tamworth. His parents were leading lights of Tamworth's community theatre scene. Peter's immersion in this theatrical form was early and plentiful. A diet of classic musicals and the GNS repertoire contributed to his destiny on the stage. A graduate of the National Institute of Dramatic Art, he has amassed considerable credits in stage plays and television. These include Nicholas Nickleby, Chinchilla, Breaker Morant, The Sullivans, Carson's Law and Return to Eden. And we have been spellbound by his succession of dynamic performances in the blockbuster musicals Aspects of Love, Miss Saigon, Les Miserables and The Phantom of the Opera. Presently, Peter is the Artistic Director of the Talent Development Project, conducting workshops and masterclasses with elite talent from government schools across New South Wales. He is a consummate artist who has invested his talent across many platforms, stages and roles. His experiences and garnered wisdom are vast. So vast that we couldn't resist sharing his unique journey across three episodes. In part one, we reflect on early theatrical influences, his training, and the business of show. Welcome to Stages, Peter Cousins. Peter Cousins, thanks for joining the Stages podcast. It's, um, it'll be lovely to have this opportunity to, uh, to chat for a while. Thank you, Pete. Um, um, it's a great pleasure and a great honour to be a part of this wonderful, wonderful legacy of, well, I shouldn't say legacy, but thing you've created to... Uh, to sort of promote and share and and um, you know give give expression to people's um, lives and, and particular views of of life. <laughs> it's quite a cast, and now I can add you to that that podcast of characters. <laughs> Thank you. Now, as a fellow Peter, uh, do, do you get Pete or Peter or what do people generally call you, or what do you like to be called? Secretly, I think I like Pete, but but I'm people tend to refer to me as Peter, and I think in different situations, you know, um, I'll let Pete slip through to the to the keeper because um, um, it, it and it depend it does depend on who I'm talking to. Like like when I'm signing emails, I might put Pete to someone and Peter to someone else. In conversation, it probably tends to be Peter, but yeah. But even that depends. It's, I don't know whether it's the same with you, but it does depend on sort of mates or not mates and, you know. Well, to to share a bit of my 
age, when I was in primary school, I had quite sort of longish hair for a country boy from Tamworth, and I was called Beetle after the Beetle. So, well, that fifth Beetle was called was a Peter also, wasn't he? Pete Best. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Any other nicknames? Prince of Light. Well, it was from David Argue. I don't know if you remember David Argue. I do indeed. Actor. Fabulous Australian actor. Yeah. And David and I were at NIDA together and he dubbed me Prince of Light. And I think he was trying to be disparaging as well because I think <laughs> I was, I, I my, well, my middle name is Light as well, but I think he, he, he wouldn't have, may wouldn't have, he may not have known that. But it was, I think, I tended to give off this sort of rather, I don't know, it was probably a role I played at school. It's usually the thing when you're that age, the, when you get into acting, it's usually the last thing you did that you can sort of, that you obviously had some success with and it got you into night as someone. It must have been a prince or a, you know, a, a, a wonderfully kind of royal a character of, of, of entitlement and privilege because that's, I think, I think that's where I got it from. Also, I think I was a bit of a goody two-shoes too, and I think, and David was was kind of the reverse. We ended up actually flatting together for a while, and um, the odd couple, the odd couple, we were, yeah. But um, he was great, great company. Such a funny, funny guy. And he was very young. He was much younger than most of us. Like he was about sixteen, I think, when he was there. I think he was in. Wasn't he in Gallipoli as well? Yeah, he was indeed. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He used to. He used to make puppets. And out of out of sort of um, you know rubber and and foam and and things, which was which he did quite a bit. I think when he left Nida, he's a bit of a puppeteer, very very creative. Anyway, that's that's David. Um, is Light a family name then? Your, your, your middle name, Light? Yes, it's actually William Light, and um, my Alma, my the cousin's side of the family were called Light after my great great grandmother who was Harriet Light, and Harriet was um, was born in Ireland, but she was a relative of Francis Light, who was the, um, he ended up being part of the um, East India Company, and he owned Penang off the coast of Malaysia. He was given it, and he was also given some Mal- a Malaysian um, partner, bride, if you like. Right. And his, his, um, it was his nephew anyway, Colonel William Light, came out to Adelaide and founded that beautiful city and created that square, and he was the surveyor. And there's a beautiful statue of him overlooking, um, which was nearly pulled down actually last year or the year before. Going back a little bit earlier, whenever I went to Adelaide for the Adelaide Festival or to do a show, I was always carted out to the statue and I was I sort of um, stood underneath my forebear pointing over the city of Adelaide um, in sort of you know, recognition of his, his, his uh, contribution to the city. Peter, tell me about being on stage with Rudolf Nureyev. Gee, it was an extraordinary experience, and, and more so in retrospect, I think, than at the time. I think we were, I was still at NIDA and we were cut, we were thrown into these supernumerary roles either with, with the ballet or the opera company. And this was the London Festival Ballet who came out to the region. And um, 
I was on side of stage with, with Linda Cropper and John Howard and Robert Grubb. I think David Argue was there as well. And, and we would get up to all sorts of mischief on the side of these, 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 these productions. And, and of course, Rudolf and Ray have turned up as, as Romeo in, in Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, you know, just the most extraordinary and beautiful thing. And to be that close up, it was absolutely um, amazing. And to watch that, that performance. But the greatest memory I have of him actually is in the darkness when we, as the supernumeries, would have to rush on to the stage to, to, um, to take over from some solo he'd had on, on stage and, and fill the the wings of the, the the side of the stage all we hear as we tried to because we only had about you know two and a half days rehearsal to do all this as we kind of found our way to our positions you could just and he had to sort of walk through the middle of us and all we got was fuck off fuck off fuck <laughs> off in this fantastic kind of russian accent as we obviously were irritating the shit out of him <laughs> there you go. No, it was a, it was a beautiful experience and and very memorable and very memorable for that Regent Theatre, which was like a a a weeping dungeon of of mould and and dripping water and um, is a very very um, uh, dilapidated place to be. And the other thing I remember about it most, and this is I associate this is why the memory is quite fresh, because on our very final night, my brother-in-law came in to tell me that my father had just had had a stroke and was in. Um, McLean Hospital up near Yamba, and um, and I was to fly home the next morning, and the, the season had finished. But um, I just remember being in this kind of dungeon thing in front of my little area where I where I changed, and my my brother-in-law giving me this news before mobile phones, of course. So mm. um, it's that sort of juxtaposition of 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 this sort of rather beautiful and impressive. Um, Physicalization of from, from Uriah and this um, this very difficult moment in my life, a bit of a defining moment, in fact. What's that? The old Irving Berlin song, you know. Even though your uncle, your favourite uncle, died at dawn, you're broken hearted, but you go on. There's yes. no business like show business. Um, yes. is, is there no business like show business? Uh, I, I don't think there is a business, any other business like show business, because I actually don't think it's a business. I, I've never believed it, it's, or, or is it an industry? I really, those two words really have always sort of vaguely irritated me and, and um, I hate referring to, to what we do um, as, as being part of an industry um, or a business. I think, uh, dare I say, we're, we're not above it. We're just... It, we just don't function that way. And I think that's why we get into such a mess and why, you know, they try and work out what we do and what is our industry and how to deal with it, you know, government, business, corporations, sponsors, you know, they expect us to have those sorts of structures. They don't realise that we are utterly chaotic in the way we function. Mm -hmm. And then at a particular moment, we become probably the most disciplined and constructed team of people you could ever imagine, running to clock like you wouldn't believe. And it's that juxtaposition. To, this is in the making of plays, obviously. Uh, so that juxtaposition is, is, has nothing to do, I think, with um, the way our other industries work, and particularly the chaos end of what we do. And I think that's the way with the way many of us run our our, our personal financial lives, if you like, or our careers, we are in constant chaos because 
as we know, it's particularly in Australia, opportunities are so are so piecemeal that you end up having this sort of piecemeal career and piecemeal understanding of of um, of how to how to run um, your life. I mean, it took me twenty years to get a bank loan because no one would would just know what understand what, what how uh, you know I functioned. I brought up a couple of kids. I you know rented constantly, so I must have been getting an income from somewhere, but. Yeah, the idea of lending money to an actor was like anathema to those sorts of institutions. So I think things have changed a little bit. There is no business like show business, uh, but not in that sentimental way, I think in a very uh, in a very real and practical way. We see the art sector uh, being ravaged by COVID at the moment uh, to the detriment of uh, artists and, and audiences alike. Why, why are the arts so crucial to a a community? Um, I think for a number of reasons. Um, and and I, I think one of them is, is historic in that what we learn as a society and as a people and as, a, as human beings um, is, is served best, I think, by telling stories and, or, and creating pictures and, um, and singing songs, music in particular, I think. Um, I think the first way people really actually communicated together was through music and song I think there's the beautiful beautiful book which you may have read called um the world in six songs mm. which describes the the very genesis of of language being being based and the sort of evolution of language being based around these six songs and 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 thematically what they what they are and what those six themes are which I could probably nearly list off but I don't know what to test myself um, live on on, <laughs> <laughs> on a podcast <laughs> on, on the podcast, but I, I, I could have a go in a little minute. minute. But so yeah, I think the because uh, of that, that historical precedent, if you like, we we do have a responsibility to to keep on with that evolution for those very reasons of passing on what our humanness is is all about, and. And there are, you know, you can drill down into that if you want. But, you know, for me, and I think as I've got older, I tend to, to be a bit more, um, I try to, try to um, as one does when it gets older, ponder things in a sort of, in a heightened way or a philosophical way as, as one, as, you know, as one lives and, and, and under, seems, thinks they understand things, although I think that understanding is... Um, well, think most things passeth all understanding. In fact, um, so um, you know that that endeavour. But yes, I think I think the arts are, are crucial to evolution, to the way we are, the way we think we want to be, the way we think we aren't, the way we think we we should be, um, and we have that we have a role to play in in of course um, helping people to construct and discover the goodness in themselves and to recognise the darkness and to accept both as being part of the way life works and our suffering, if you like, or our pain, which is so beautifully and often cathartically expressed in the arts, is something that we, we should actually cherish both because they are the pain and the, 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 um, the joy, of course, is all a part of what life is about and... and um, it reminds us, like death does, of course, that the life is is there to be lived. Sing God a simple song, la de la day. 
make it up as you go along, la da la Sing like you like to sing, God loves all simple things, for deal of your career has been with song do you still sing on a on a daily basis i know that you you know you you occasionally do some cabaret and, and concerts but but how important is singing to you um week by week day by day um look up until about um i spent two months ago i speak probably towards the beginning of this lockdown i did a gig at um at um mark's at um, Bear's Kitchen. And, and prior to that, I'd really kind of been singing a lot every day. And then when I'd finished that, I actually went to, to Queensland and, and performed again um, at, um, at the occasion of, of actually my, my graduation up there. Um, I, put, I had at Central Queensland University up in Mackay and I did a concert with my supervisor, who's a beautiful pianist, and she had supervised me through my, through my MA. So we did a concert too their beautiful little theatre up there. And um, that was the last time I actually had sung until a week ago. And that was that was the middle of May, which is very dangerous for a singer. One shouldn't really let 10 days go without, without making a noise um, of some sort. And I, I sort of, I, I realised this, and I realised it because I had been involved in singing and, and, and sitting on Zoom with, you know, 42 young TDP um, students who'd come into Zoom and had presenting things to me and we were talking about exactly similar things to what I've been talking about for the last 15 minutes or so um, in sort of big picture stuff. And I suddenly realised that um, the thing that's missing at the moment, because we're talking about what things are missing in these young people's lives, and as we know at the moment in lockdown, there are a lot of things missing, um, but thankfully not music. Thank, and thanks, and they are, they are very grateful for their experience with TDP. And I hope that other kids around Australia are getting the similar sort of experiences in some way, this oasis that, that, is, that is music. But anyway, I've started singing again in the last week, so it's funny that you, you, should, you should even ask that question. So important um, and very much a part of, even though I, you know, I've performed maybe five times in the last seven months, it's still... Um, it still should be and, and is, you know, very much part of my routine. Tell me about Madame Marianne Mathy. Uh, well, Marty was my very first, no, my second singing teacher. I, I, I had a, a couple of lessons when I was, I went away to um, Scotland to a school called Gordonston on a sort of an exchange thing. And there was a woman there, or a husband and wife actually, called Mary Nicholson, and they were the, they were the sort of, she was a singing teacher and he was an MD, musical director type. And he, we did a production of, of the Magic Flute together and a few other things because I had come to the school with a little bit of a reputation for being able to sing a bit. And 
I had my very first singing lesson with her. And then when I got to us back to Australia and I was at Sydney University, my brother-in-law um, was at the time June Bronhill's manager. And Bronhill, um, who I got to know reasonably well over the, a period of four or five, six years. Um, but initially when I was 18, she introduced me to her old singing teacher, Madam Marion Marty. And um, I then I auditioned for her and she took me on and I was with her for, for two years until I sort of went to NIDA and halfway through NIDA, I, I got so distracted with being a very serious actor who just wanted to sit in coffee houses and drink black coffee and wear black that I didn't, <laughs> I sort of eschewed her. But she was amazing. She'd been the one of the founders of the Australian Opera League back in the 50s. She'd escaped the Nazis or a family had extraordinary kind of career. And um, she was quite old when I knew her and she had this, this um, studio in her home in Double Bay and she had very gnarled fingers and she'd play rather badly, probably as well as I do actually, which is badly music and she but she and I still use her exercises to and in fact I was singing one of her exercises just yesterday because they've stayed with me since that time and she had a particular style of singing but the great thing about her was that she had this poodle and the poodle would sit at her her feet during the lesson and, and quite silently until you happen to hit a particular note with I, I always interpreted with with such style and grace and beauty <laughs> that the dog would rear up on its on its uh, hind legs and root the death out of her calf <laughs> as she as she put her foot on the pedal. So this humping dog would uh, would function as a as a litmus test to one's kind of tone and and uh, beauty as a singer. Um, and dare I say that I saw quite a bit of humping in my time, thankfully. From the thankfully. That was a good sign. A good sign, yeah. All about the vibrations. So, so you're now Artistic Director of the Talent Development Project, TDP. Uh, what makes for a good teacher of the performing arts? Because obviously in your career, um, training at NIDA with Marion Marty, many singing teachers... Who is able to communicate uh, the arts effectively? I believe that teaching, particularly in the arts, but I think teaching generally is the impact of personality on personality. And, and I, think, I think we can all go back to our experiences, our, our heightened or cathartic or meaningful or purposeful experiences with teachers and there something else, something more was happening than just the sharing of, of facts or the sharing of information or the sharing of experience. It seems to be something more than that. And that 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 moments are remembered or something visceral is experienced. And and again, particularly in the arts, so much of our work is is is, is visceral, it has to be visceral. We have to find an experience in public, if you like, whether it's our fellow actors or whether it's our just our tutor or our teacher. We have to, we can't, as Stanislavski, you know, used to used to uh, abhor the, the actor who spent most of their night doing Hamlet in their bedrooms and they turn up the next day and they'd, they'd give these appallingly over-the-top extraordinary experiences. Well, I have been guilty of that, as I'm <laughs> sure many actors have, who are fabulous in front of the mirror. 
but it, it's that's that's anyway. I digress. But that that um, visceral idea. So, to me, and as a teacher, I um, and I and I and I. The only reason I do this because I'm not a trained teacher. Most actors aren't. We communicate. We learn to communicate extremely well, but. I'm not a trained teacher, although I am just about, if I finish my certificate for VET, I will, TAE, I'll get, I will be certified and trained, certified being the operative word, having done the course and going mad, but there you go. Um, <laughs> this idea of, of um, impact of personality upon personality, that impact is, I think, the playing field which I like to be in, where I feel as though I can have this engagement with um, with with, in this case, you know, young performers in the moment in such a way that they um, are drawn to experience something. And a lot of that has to do with explicitly believing in them and making them accountable by believing in themselves. And it's that nexus or that sort of engagement, I think, which which can make the difference um, in, in the teaching of of these young people, and, and that's really um, certainly with TDP, whether it's conscious or not, the, the, the kind of people I get into to consult and to teach and, and, and be part of that team of, um, of mentors, if you like, use for, you know, for another word, um, tend to have, I've observed that that is their, their thing, their style, their way of working. Did you have a good time at school growing up? I loved uh, my my high school days as in boarding school my days in in primary school I, I just remember being beaten a lot there was a lot of caning and um bruised hands from from right. teachers it was very much a part of the way of, of disciplining us um uh and i felt very very um uh i expect sort of and it was a funny little country town. Tamworth was, you know, tiny and a little funny little primary school, and probably the experience of many country country kids who who are in that in that in environment where, um, you know, you you really were kind of um, beaten into submission in a way. Um, when I went to boarding school, I went to to Armidale, and I I just thrived there, um, even though I was beaten a couple of times um, by by members by staff because that was that was what happened and there was there was you know elements of a pretty pretty um appalling bullying particularly by these by these standards for instance that people would never get away with for instance um you know forcing you to put your hand on the table and 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 cutting it with knives if you happen to reach across in a bad bad mattered way to get milk for instance from the that you know that would just wouldn't happen these days, but it was it happened and it was um it was just totally totally ex not, well, I presume a, a blind eye was by staff or just accepted as, as one of the ways of of socialising you know um, bad boys from Tamworth. <laughs> but having said all of that, I I just I just loved it. There was a whole lot of fantastic things that that I did and achieved and and friends I made both amongst boys and amongst staff even the ones who beat me <laughs> it would take an incredible uh, incredibly resilient individual to um to deal with that trauma did, did that follow you around much or were you able to sort of just think 
uh, deal well, with I, it in yourself. Which, uh, yeah, which we we all dealt with it as, as kids, and we and we sort of we sort of accepted it all because we were all getting the same sort of treatment at the same age. I must admit, I rose to the heights of being the senior prefect at that school, um, and. And I think I'm, I'm, I, with, with probably the year group ahead of me, we're responsible for changing a good deal of that culture in that school. Um, and certainly on my watch, none of that happened. Um, you couldn't stop the masters necessarily caning us, but, but certainly amongst the, um, amongst the senior boys, you know, that whole fagging idea, which came from the English system yep. of, of public yep. school, was was something which um, you know I, I certainly amongst my group of those who were leading the school were um, were certainly that was pretty pretty clear that we didn't do that sort of thing. We'd all learnt together, you know, that and we didn't like it, so we stopped it. Was there much of a performing arts experience available to you at, at those schools? Yeah, totally. I mean, I I the only th- there was no drama per se. Um, I I had learnt the piano um, <clears throat> up until and I, I think I arrived there and I was in fourth or fifth grade, A, M, E, B. And when I arrived at the school, there was one piano in the woodwork room that was used to to um, you know clamp the pieces of wood on, to, so you could saw and hammer um, things together. So you can imagine the condition of that piano, which was my only practice. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I had there were, the housemaster um, was was actually also the musical director, the, the the director of of musicals at the school, and he had a piano. So I used to Armadale up at six in the morning, dash across to his house and get there, and with my freezing hands and practice like as best I could, stumble my way through my scales for half an hour before breakfast, and then once a week I would troop over to. Um, St Ursula's convent and where I met up with Mother, Mother Cecilia and she she took me then through my my scales and my studies and my pieces up until about eighth grade um, and um, I became very friendly with the with the Catholic girls there actually though that was one of the attractions as as I moved Bonus. from being a 13 year old boy not particularly interested in fact totally intimidated I became quite enamored with going over there but at the school they had a tradition of Gilbert and Sullivan and way back from the early 60s, um, they had been producing these, these um, uh, productions going through the whole, the whole range of the most popular of those, those Gilbert and Sullivans. And everyone, like footballers, cricket players, arty types of which, you know, and I was, I was an arty type, but I also was in the first 15 rugby. I also swam. I also played, you know, tennis, so sport appalling cricketer but you know I was I was part of that sports as well as and that seemed to be the balance in the school which made the school quite unique and quite interesting because you had these you know what what one would might uh, label as being sort of buffish um, footballing types were actually you know playing um playing uh, the the gondoliers in 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 the in the gondoliers and my first role was Casilda in the in the gondoliers um because my voice hadn't broken and I was given the padded bra and the beautiful um, taffeta dress that I inherited from four years before when it was had been done before. I then progressed to Rose Maybud the following year 
um, in Radigal and my voice hadn't broken by the time I was 15 and I was still singing alto in the choir, although I'd been a boy soprano, but my, my, my friend, my very dear friend, who was also my housemaster, gave me the role of Frederick in, um, in Pirates of Penzance. I think he, because he felt sorry for me, didn't think I would survive being the only boy in the equivalent of year 10 uh, whose you know, voice hadn't kind of started to make those sorts of cracking noises, which it never did, thankfully. Um, so I then moved on to Frederick and then I played Coco and then I played um, in Mikado and then um, Jack Point in The Omen of the Guard. So you can see that that was my theatre experience and it came because I'd come to the school with a reputation. My mother had been the leading lady of Tamworth for the, about the last 30 years, playing lots of lots of musical roles, as, as had my father. And um, I just had this experience. And that's the only theatre and drama experience I had in my teens. I never saw a straight play. Um, I didn't know what that really, how that function, what a straight play was all about. I read a bit of Shakespeare in English rather badly. And um, and then the very early, when I was very, very young, I'd played Little Jake in um, Annie Get Your Gun with my mother and one of the kids in The King and I. So I had no other experience other than damn operetta and a couple of musicals. I'd dance and I'd sing, I'd do anything just to get my name in lights. I gotta try to hit the heights now that I'm free as a breeze again. Old nimble ease again. That's the Tamworth influence. And soon they'll all know my name I'll have fortune and fame When I get my name in lights It can happen overnight In these modern times Here in the jazz age The world is at a crazy stage you can be famous and cause a panic If you slick back your hair and then you fly the Atlantic And that's why I won't let go until I'm on the radio And when you come to see the sights That'll be my name spelled right Lighting up Times Square I'd sit on a flagpole, whatever the rate just to get my fachi on the front page Just to get my name in lights And, and community theatre is also a terrific grounding uh, to, to give a young performer an experience backstage, on stage. Did you have all of that? Yeah, very much so. And we were, you know, at school we were very much a part of the the building of the sets. Um, we went, in fact, uh, we went in. We used to go into the what was then known as the Arts Council Drama Competition for schools. And in my four years um, there, I um, was adjudicated by four um, people who came up from Sydney, who became theatre like luminous directors in our theatre world. One was Rodney Fisher. One was Richard Werrett, one was Stephen Hall, and the fourth one I can't remember. 
but there was there was three. Richard, who came on, you know, was became the the uh, first director of the Sydney Theatre Company and had had been part of the beginnings of Nimrod. And um, Rodney Fisher, of course, just the most extraordinary director, um, working you know all around all around Australia and and the world. And of course, um, um, Stephen Hall, who actually was the artistic director of the Opera Company for um, during the seventy and then the Sydney Festival for for many many years. And these guys had turned up to adjudicate um, adjudicate our little play, which which in my final year we won. We won the best play and the, and the best set for New South Wales school drama. And, I, and also I won the best actor. Of course, I just remember to throw that one in. That was the point of the did. whole story, of course. <laughs> yeah. And little did you know that, you know, later on in your career you would, uh, well, I know you worked with Richard. Did you work with Rodney? Yes, we did a thing called Chinchilla together. Ah, of course. Um, with, so. with, um, um, with, with my other dear friend, Peter Carroll. Um, and Richard had taught me at NIDA. Um, I, it was in a lot of productions with him, the first being um, being Chicago um, back in the very first with Nancy Hayes and, and uh, Geraldine Turner. And, and uh, you know, I, I also adored Richard. He was, he was, you know, he was my, you know, really my man love. I just, just adored him. And, and I think also because my, my father had died when I was 20 while I was at NIDA, I projected a lot of this stuff on people like him and I needed that 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 fathering thing of someone to believe in me and I think that's those sorts of influences have now influence in the way I deal with with people that I, I know how important it is to all to have that have that have that sense that someone believed in you I think that's that's to me that's the kind of the, um, the the turning point in 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 that relationship when you're a teacher and a, and a or a director um, when you're engaging with with younger people. I believe with Richard though, uh, you were working at the STC and you had a bit of a tiff and and left, only to return about six months later. What was the tiff about? I had been I had been employed as one of their company actors um, for on a three year contract um, with. Uh, Linda Cropper and I, and uh, I think an actress called Susie Lyons, and Graham Harvey was another one, um, and I think Andrew Ty. I can't. I think that was there were about five of us, and w- I was I was going to do a um, um, uh, a thing called Gossip in the Forest, uh, which was a, a novel by um, Tom. Yes, Tom Keneally, Tom Keneally's play. Gossip from the Forest, that was one of them. And there was another one called, um, anyway, two others. Anyway, uh, it was a stupid tiff about basically um, spending money on design and not on actors. That was the tiff. The, the, the production of Gossip on the forest, from the Forest, the young actors weren't be asked to the first week of rehearsal to save money. And I discovered that the re- one of the reasons why they'd save money because the design had cut 70 seats out of the, the drama theatre. So I, in my arrogance and my extraordinary sort of, you know, activism as a as a <laughs> union member, uh, you know, I was just I was you know outraged that, that that this would happen that they would sacrifice a a week's salary of 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 you know us, us group of young actors. So I sort of got a petition together. I wrote stuff. I, I was appalling. 
And um, Richard and I, he, you know, Richard was so lovely, trying to kind of sort of calm me down and sort of, you know, think think this through. And we had this bit of a screaming match in the in the um, Sydney Theatre corridor, which was up in those days. It was um, up in um, um, off, off Oxford Street. Um, there was a, there was a, a large building there where that we were housed in there, and um, I sort of walked out of the of the company because you know over this ridiculous issue was basically to do with also leather boots. They were using leather boots, and I couldn't work out why they were constructing out of leather when they when it was the theatre and they could easily use vinyl and save you know. <laughs> 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 there, that's that's your roots in community theatre coming through too, probably. Yes, obviously. Anyway, so I I walked out of this contract, and um, interestingly enough, it wasn't that long after that that um, Richard then said to me, came back to me, and I and because of that, I ended up working in a cafe just near the Theatre Royal. Um, it, it's now gone, but in that little alley. Um, beside the beside the Theatre Royal called Pastels. And Pastels is where I first saw um, Phil Scott. Phil Scott playing there, Rob and Arthur. We all, they had all this cabaret stuff going on in there, up, tiny little place. And I worked in there six months because I had no income. I'd thrown it, I'd thrown it away like a fool. And um, But Richard, as Richard does, and he's never held a grudge against anyone, just asked me back to, to be part of Nicholas Nickleby and, and be in that wonderful cast of people where I met my wife and we were engaged six months, six weeks after um, we sort of met in that we had a three-month rehearsal period and uh, we were married sort of in between. That, that production is very dear to our hearts, obviously. But, um, and Richard also then after that gave me the role of, um, of uh, Mozart in Amadeus, which I turned down oh. um, to, go, to go off and do um, a, a television series called Return to Eden in in South Australia, where I drove a, a Porsche and um, had had an umber plate with four plate written on it. So why would you why would you not do that over and above playing Mozart? I mean, you know, where was the logic of that? What <laughs> happened? To that? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to that feisty young actor? I know. I was, I the turned, I'd totally gone, totally commercial. Um, I was married by then, so I probably thought, you know, I've got to earn some money. And also, you know, I hadn't earned, I hadn't earned much money. It, you, know, you know, the wages factors weren't were anywhere. Well, they're probably equivalent to they are now. I don't know, but they, you know, but, um, no one had saved any money. We didn't have any money, so. Mind you, you you talk about um, an extraordinary period there, where you know you're on a three year contract at the STC. Three months rehearsal for Nicholas Nickleby. I mean, that's a show that that features about thirty actors. Am I right? It's a huge ensemble. We don't see that nowadays. Yeah. No, no, we don't see that at all. Um, and you know, prior and and also sort of in between all of that, uh, I ended up doing um, Camelot with Richard Harris, who had a, a huge ensemble as well that toured around Australia. And as it turned out, would have had to have played to 110% to have got anywhere near its money back. It had been it had been brought in by um, it had been produced by a um, very famous um, producer at the time. His name has escaped me. Someone will remember. Yeah. So you know this whole business of big casts and 
big things happening. Um, yeah, certainly a sign of the times. It doesn't happen. If ever I would leave you, it wouldn't be in summer. Seeing you in summer, I never would go. Your hair streaked with sunlight, your lips red as flame, your face with a luster that puts gold to shame. But if I'd ever leave you, it couldn't be in autumn. How I'd leave in autumn, I never will know. How you sparkle when fall nips the air. I know you in autumn, and I must be there. And could I leave you running merrily through the snow, or on a wintry evening when you catch the fire's glow? I would leave you How could it be in springtime Knowing how in spring I'm bewitched by you so Oh no, not in springtime Summer, winter or fall No, never could I leave you What was Richard Harris like to work with? Another great example of um, impact of personality on personality. I, I adored Richard and we stayed close for a good 10 or 12 years after, after that um, in terms of, um, you know, um, communicating with each other. He, he, his influence for me was, was defining, uh, again, um, just as an actor and, and musical theatre as well he wasn't a great singer necessarily but he had this ability to to act um in a in a way that kind of matched the heightened form that is that is um that is music and and singing and and he he again was another person who who believed in me and he i remember he sort of used to stand on the side of the stage and put his arm around me and say now come on be be bold, be bold, lose yourself in the size. And you, when Richard Harris talks about size, you t- he's talking about uh, being a very big, busy actor, as we know. You know he's, so um, that's, he, he, he passed that visceral experience onto me. And, you know, I'd come out as playing, um, playing his, his, the evil uh, son, is, again, the character name has just escaped me for a moment. And, Mordred. And, Mordred, and try all this stuff. You know, attempted all, and he he'd come back and and just either you know hug me and say well done, or said you could have done more, or you know try this on this line or whatever. So it was a great acting exercise. But um, years later, he I, I met him in London um, a few times, and he was living in the Savoy uh, Hotel 
And in fact, that's another story, but we, um, we had an extremely drunken night because when he was in Australia, he wasn't drinking at all. Um, and, and when I met him in, in London 10 years later again, and we hadn't, I hadn't seen him, but we corresponded, but um, he, um, we went out, his musical director, and we got far too much to drink. In the, this is in the afternoon. And then I was rung to say, in my hotel to say I had to come to the theatre at Miss Saigon because I, I, I was to see it because the next day I was having my final audition for, for the role. <laughs> so I remember Richard on a, on a number of accounts. And the third thing, of course, was the joy of being able to say to my young children, that guy playing Dumbledore is a, is a mate. So that was, the, you know, the three. Talk about um, the impact of personality on personality. Very, very, def- three very defining moments with, with Richard. I believe he wanted you to return to the States to go on the American tour of, of Camelot. Is that right? Yeah. But you, did, you didn't yeah, go. Was, do, do you regret no. that? No, no, uh, I don't. I think it was, it was a, well, you know, who knows what have happened. I don't think a lot would have happened. I mean, uh, you know, in the reality of, of the way the theatre is and the way that the world's a secondary tour of secondary cities around America. Um, would have been pretty tough. I don't think I, I couldn't have taken my, my Susie with me. Um, so there are all those sorts of considerations. And also um, that return to Eden, that this all slotted in at the same time. Because in, in between the seasons of, um, of Nicholas Nickleby, because we, we were laid off for a year or about nine months before we toured to Melbourne, I did, I, that's when I did Camelot. And um, it was... After that, after and then doing Nicholas, then the tour was going to happen the following year after Nicholas Nickleby. So it all slotted in. That's when Return to Eden turned up as well. So it was Mozart, Mordred, or foreplay on the on on the Porsche. <laughs> well, with uh, Return to Eden, you're also working with a, a, another great musical theatre actor in James Smiley. Yeah. Yes. Who 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 had quite a reputation and and, and sang beautifully, yeah. yeah Jane um, Smiley, and Rebecca, and Peter DePano. Oh, and yes, and also also Susie, my wife, was in it, playing playing Peter DePano's lesbian lover, <laughs> dressed, in, dressed in a snake suit, who actually got who got murdered in the shower by a snake. Yes, it was one of those um, extreme of soap the- operas, wasn't it? Wasn't it Re- Re- Rebecca Gibney? Gilling. No, not Gilling. Gilling. I was getting yeah. Gibney and Gilling mixed up. But she was attacked by a crocodile, also. She was. That was that was the that was the mini series, and then this was the twenty six episode series that sort of um, came afterwards. And Rebecca was was in it and looking very much like my sister as I played her son, and um, she, um, yeah, it was just it's extraordinary extraordinary sort of soap opera that sort of or series that aped very much the dynasties and and whatever that was going on at the time but it was much more outrageous and and ended up having quite a a cult following and still does it's still um there's a big instagram group and that that show episodes well excerpts for episodes on on instagram you can pick it up anyway as you those people listening and hearing the description 
of what I what we just talked about with the snake suit and the snake and the portion. You, you get you get the benchmark of the the piece. Beautiful production values though, and and some lovely directors, Ken Cameron and Rod Hardy and and others. You know, all had their had their fingers on the on that uh, particular production. With your mum being the leading lady of Tamworth and dad directing a lot of shows, I imagine they were were pretty supportive of you going into the the performing arts and wanting to be an actor. Yes, I, I think it was a great frustration of my mother's to have been, um, um, you know, she'd always sort of been a, a tap dancer and everything in her teens and and moving into the, the glamorous life of the Tamworth Musical Society in, in about 1948. And my father, I've got a program with my father and her in the, together in a, in a, in a, in a musical called Sally, I think it was called. And um, they're listed there. She, um, she, she certainly, I think, was frustrated by the fact that she, she felt she could have been in a better place. Hey, how many of us have felt that? How many, how many people in community theatres around Australia have felt that, that they, that they could have made it? And most definitely, why not? Why, why couldn't you, you know? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, she was very, they were both very supportive. I mean, I was doing law at Sydney Uni um, at the time when I auditioned for, for NIDA and I thought, oh, look, I'll audition every couple of years and see if I can get in, you know, over a period of time. Anyway, I was mentored by another person who, who, whose personality had an impact on me, a guy called Robert Levis, who was an actor and director um, back, back then. Um, and he, he, he directed and performed at the old Tote Theatre Company, which was the precursor to the Sydney Theatre Company, out where the NIDA building is. There was a parade, thing called the Parade Theatre out there, where the old Tote Theatre Company was. And, um, and Robert sort of had, had mentored me, and, and I'd met him at a drama, an Arts Council drama camp that happened um, in the January school holidays when I got back, before I started university. He obviously saw something in me. And hence he took me on, mentored me through the speeches and whatever. I mean, I'd never done a straight play. I'd, you know, I'd never spoken that sort of Shakespearean dialogue, for instance, on stage. The first plays I ever saw when I went to London to, at the age of 18 on this exchange. And I, I had 10, 10 I had, uh, I saw 10 plays and musicals in, in seven days in a week, because you could. And um I saw everything and was sat there astounded with my mouth open, seeing, you know, Streetcar Named Desire and, um, and uh, you know other f- fabulous uh, Richard the Second, um, this you know just letting all this stuff wash over me. Anyway, my when I got drove, I drove home from from university, and um, my mother was and she she was in my father and mother's real estate office in the main street of Yamba by then because they had moved from Tamworth, and she she uh, she handed me this opened letter. <laughs> she said. <laughs> Such was her, such was her extraordinary support for, for her son that the letter had actually, in her mind, been written to her, and she always, you know, she was the type of woman who'd go and see things like Miss Saigon and sit up in the circle, and and she'd sort of make friends with the person beside her, and she, she would say, you know, somewhere in that exchange, or that's my son, and you can just hear it, can't you? And then she would say, would you like me to sign your 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 program? which she would then do on my behalf. So it wasn't strange that she had now received this, this letter of invitation to come to NIDA and she just said to me, where do you want to go next year? Because here it is. Thank you, Mum. God love her. 
Do you remember the first straight play that you saw? It was, in fact, and this is, and I've, I've slightly, I've slightly, dare I say, embellished the, that that story about being in London a little bit because it, the very first um, straight play I saw was actually the Alto production of of Mice and Men with Hugh Keys Burns and and George Whaley. And who was the other guy in it? Martin Vaughan. Um, Martin Vaughan. And I, yes, that's right. So that was at the at the drama theatre. Yeah, that was yeah. the first play, play I ever saw. And Gillian Jones. Gillian Jones. Yeah. 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 Some extraordinary practitioners to uh, have yes, a baptism by. Yes, absolutely. And the other practitioner who had a very big influence on in my early days, because in those days when you left NIDA, you you know there was no other drama school. You were pretty pretty much destined to go somewhere and I ended up at the Queensland Theatre Company for a while but after that I started on this role of of getting into television and um things like like the Sullivan's cop shop skyways um um all these all these you know Carson's Law series yeah all those series were being done and Carson's Law and and I ran into Graham Rouse who just passed away who's married to Maggie Dents or was married to Maggie Dents beautiful Maggie and and Graham um, and I were in, he was playing my sort of, um, he was a, he was a sort of a, you know, a trotting a jockey, you know, they'd be on those harnesses, harness jockey. And that was his character. And I was a, I think I was the strapper or something in this particular thing. And he taught me so much about television and, and acting just in the, the couple of weeks we were together. And we became, I expect fr- very, very cl- close acquaintances over the next so many years until I haven't seen him. I didn't see him long, much before he died. But I, my memories of him were very, um, were very appreciative and grateful for what again was, I think, in my for me anyway, was this father figure that um, I was was obviously becoming a bit of a, of a vacuum that ne- that kept needing to be filled. How old were you when Dad passed away? Twenty. Okay, so still informative years. Yeah, and when you think about it, you know, an adult relationship with your parent probably only begins about when you're about 14 or 15. Yeah. You know, a proper, a proper exchange of, of, of ideas and things. I was at boarding school for most of that time. So from 14 to 18, um, and he was having his own particular troubles, ex-Spitfire pilot, very, very uh, messed around, um, you know, beautiful, beautiful man, drank too much, smoked too much, hypertension, um, you know, so and and struggled uh, with that sort of, I think, the, um, you know, survivor's guilt sort of thing probably. Yeah. I don't yeah. know, very hard to tell because, like, that generation very enclosed. But he and I are extremely close, physically very close, very loving, very tight and, and um, you know, you know, very... And I, I use the word carefully, a very masculine um, um, affection, which, what does that mean? Because uh, it, it, it presents itself in exactly the same way as, as affection between men and women and women and women. But for some, you know, for some odd reason, I think there is, there is something about that between men uh, that, um, that is, you know, particular whether it's father and sons or is it men who are lovers, you know, or, or men who are friends. There is, it's, it's a different sort of um, affection. It feels different, um, I think, and, and 
that and for me that was you know, very very important and very visceral again. My father's pride was in his hands, the piano was his soul. I watched in wonder as he played show tunes miles off from rock and roll. What he loved, he taught me. Now music's what I do. And often when I'm writing in my hands, Dad's there too. If I sing, you are the music. If I fly, you're why I'm good. If my hands can find some magic, you're the one who said they could. When the child who's still inside me finds a song in empty air, when there is joy in making music, it is you. Drama school. Did you enjoy drama school? You're at NIDA for three years. Perhaps start with what were the audition pieces that you auditioned with? Do you remember? I know I sang because Madame Marty prepared me for my singing audition and I sang the song Till, T-I-L-L. And I actually saw the music of it the other day, and I can't even, I can't even, I, I can't think of the tune at the moment. I can't remember. It was a, a very old kind of ballad thing. Um, and um, as for the, I can't remember the the um, um, audition pieces, although I do remember the panel. There was Michael Fuller, who was a movement teacher. There was, there was a guy called Christopher Ross Smith. Christopher Ross Smith was the head of acting there in my first year. Um, and he he directed me in, in things like um, we did the crucible, etc. It's sort of classroom exercises. But he just died a, a couple of weeks ago. He lived in Armidale. Uh, I don't know whether you know the actor Christopher Mosley. Do you know Chris Mosley? No, no. No. Um, anyway, he his 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 he, he, he became Chris's stepson. But Chris was a very a, a very very lovely guy, quite an academic um, theatre person, um, and George Whaley then took over after after that. So that, and I think Aubrey Miller was on that panel as well. The school was, I mean, the drama school was 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 you know was tin was that tin shed uh, time in at Nida up 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 High Street. Facilities were really rough and tumble. There was smashed walls because Margaret Barr used to make us throw ourselves in our death throes <laughs> into into the. <laughs> into the sort of masonite and um you know it was it was you know nothing like the extraordinary kind of facilities the the theater was was totally um you know rat infested and leaking held about 150 people but you know we all did these and there you know there are some defining performances there um judy davis and mel gibson doing romeo and juliet in that tiny little theater um 
Mel doing uh, another piece there with uh, a musical called, um, which I can't remember the name of, but again, a sort of a, a American noir sort of piece. Um, but Aubrey Mellor doing some extraordinary unknown Australian pieces in that theatre. Uh, we did Thripney Opera in that theatre uh, with Rob Grubb and um, Di Smith and Penny Cook, the late beautiful Penny Cook. Um, there's some there's some great memories there at that time and 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 bonding amongst amongst so always happens in 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 the, all those sort of tribal the tribal feeling you have amongst a group who go through those sorts of experiences together. You you would know from WAPA, you know that's absolutely of, you're in that pressure cooker environment for for three years and spending each day and often up to you know it could be 24 hours sometimes with the same people. Yeah, you're, you're bound to form yeah. some sort of bond of of having been through that experience together. Yeah. Yeah. And we were like, you know, we had lovely, we had fantastic directors coming and going and like Richard and um, Rex Cramphorn, the late Rex Cramphorn, who, um, um, extraordinary director. Yeah. So th those, those sorts of opportunities, Richard Cottrell and just the, you know, lovely actors who came out of that group, like, like, like Linda and Rob Grubb and, and, um, um, his name Fitzgerald, um, Lewis, Lewis, and um, yeah, Penny Cook and Di Smith, and yeah, and all Glenn, Glenda Linscott, who I think is over at Whopper now, running the, yep. the drama. Yeah, you know, some some uh, some lovely people. So has your focus now shifted from the musical theatre, you know, with all that GNS work that you've been doing, to wanting to be a legitimate actor in the theatre rather than have a musical theatre career? Yeah, absolutely. I, I I had totally been struck by wanting to be um, play all those classical roles, the Hamlets and the Romeo and Juliets, and I wanted to be very much a part of that that serious um, side of the theatre. Um, as did I think most of my all of my peers actually at the time, and those opportunities were there. Um, but you know, reality reality doesn't sort of necessarily take you that way. Although I did try to 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 have that sort of ex career or that experience. Um, and I've fallen back into wanting to do that, um, you know, doing, I did Measure for Measure, for measure with Nick Enright and, and did um, uh, uh, the Scottish play and Hamlet with Bill Gaskell and Colin Friels as Hamlet way back in the, in the uh, very early part of his career. And um, I had sort of admired and, and loved all that and wanted to be part of it. But, it just didn't work out that way because um, when I got married, you know, Sue said to me, well, we're not going to survive unless you start singing because, you know, you, that is another part of your, your bag of tricks and you should be, you should be taking proper singing lessons and, and doing stuff. And I think she was a bit romanticised because I'd sung at our wedding. I'd sung um, When I Grow Too Old to Dream at our, at, during my sort of wedding speech. And I think she was, she was, must have been impressed or something anyway she, she decided that that's what I, I should be doing so there's this terrible story where she found the um she found this uh cutting uh, in the in the north shore times we were living in mcmahon's point at the time and it, which said you know rita hunter is is has a studio opened in taramara glorious glorious welch soprano which the opera company had brought out to to um do the ring cycle um and uh She'd never, it never happened. She was a very large woman, and I think flying back to on, on the 747s was all a bit tricky. And her husband was, was 
was large as well. But uh, and also, I think they found life in Australia pretty good, but much better than the the the, the, the run doing the opera, being in London and whatever. So she opened this little studio, and I spent three years um, with them, and I I sang three notes with 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 basically with John and with John was the husband um, over three years. All, all I did up and down my tessitura, and it was sort of based on this bel canto system of singing whereby you just lined the voice up from bottom to top so that it resonated in the same place in the same position and they said to me when you master this your voice will last eight shows a week night after night until you are well into your 70s and i'm not well into my 70s but i certainly have sung eight shows a week constantly for years and years and years and um i'm now in my middle <laughs> and um <laughs> uh, and i'm singing uh as as i think as, as well as i've ever sung um not much opportunity to sing but i've i sound wonderful in the bathroom but who doesn't sound wonderful in the bathroom so you know it's it's all fine but um yeah, so I, 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 you know, I just owe so much to John who, you know, he would brew beer and he'd be standing there drinking tankards of home brew and I, the bottles would pop off in the back room, dogs everywhere, um, Rita running around cooking and in big moo-moos and things and this extraordinary experience with, with them both on the floor just resonating and finding the place for the sound to be optimally produced and just learning how to open up the sound. Um, and it was a particular um, technique that, that, you know, worked for me anyway. Um, and I was able to um, sustain myself vocally ever since um, because of that. And literally, I didn't learn a, I did one little Wagnerian piece with them. Didn't learn a song. Wasn't the, wasn't the deal. The deal was how to produce the sound, how to produce the noise. And once you learned that, Actually, flexibility and you know, um, being able to to move up and down and through through songs and stuff was 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 um, wasn't easy, but it was made possible. When I grow too old to dream, I'll have you to remember. When I grow. Part two, we journey with Peter through a triumphant period of being centre stage in a succession of blockbuster musicals that dominated the Australian stage in the 80s and 90s. Miss Saigon, Les Miserables, West Side Story, Aspects of Love, Sweeney Todd and The Phantom of the Opera. 
a show that has seen him play role and make his West End debut as The Phantom. You will not want to miss part two of Stage's conversation with Peter Cousins. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.